really, really amazing stuff. They doubted that God could actually fulfill his promises and bring them into the into this land that they promised them. And so it was one of those tough situations as the Israelites, they, they move out of their... Um, out of Egypt, they can't seem to take that next step and say, man, we really want, we believe that God can bring us into this land that he has promised for us. And they get to the borders, if you remember, and they say, no, 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 these people are way too big. We can't pull this off. This is scary. And God says, all right, the next generation, I'm going to raise them up to that maybe they're faithful. Maybe they really believe that we can accomplish something here. And so that generation spends the next 40 years wandering in the desert and they pass away and last week we talked about this new generation that came there wasn't a generation that grumbled about everything and complained and man nothing's ever right nothing's ever good all that kind of stuff this is a different generation that said if God is for us who can be against us let's jump in and let's do this and the story of Joshua is an amazing story of the Israelites going into this land of Canaan and taking the land and in fact, you look at the last part of the book of Judges, it finishes kind of like one of those storybook or uh, fairy tale stories. How many of you like fairy tales? Come on, be honest here, all right. Yeah, you love those stories. Phil raised his hand, that's awesome. Okay, good. Phil's a great example for all of us. But you look where Joshua, the book of Joshua finishes. Joshua gives this amazing, stirring speech, and we finished this with this last week. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And then the people respond to saying, yes, we will serve the Lord as well. And we're left in the book of Joshua with, wow, this is one of these fairy tale stories. Everything ends wonderfully and we all live happily ever after. It's kind of like Snow White or kind of like Cinderella. How many of you love the story of Cinderella? Yeah, it's, isn't it amazing? It ends in just this high note and everything's wonderful and they live happily ever after. But something that Cinderella, or the story of Cinderella, doesn't teach us is what happens when the prince and Cinderella get married and they wake up and they realize, wait a minute, this other one's got bad breath. How am I going to navigate this? Or what happens if they're going on in life and they have um, uh, Cinderella um, has a child on the way and something goes wrong and they lose that child? The story of Cinderella doesn't tell what happens after overcoming great obstacles or over what happens when the conquest finishes. And Joshua is really the same way because in the next book, Judges tells what happens next. And oftentimes real life, after we get done with whatever the big obstacle is in life, is not as easy as, um, as the conquest was or as, as anything leading up to the big victory. And we're going to see in Judges what happens next. And so uh, there's one more example I want to share with you here. How many of you know, we've got some history buffs here, how many of you know who these guys are? Anybody? Okay. The guy on the left is Alexander the Great, the great Greek general that just his army swept all the way through the Mediterranean area, went over way far, over into Persia and into India. Uh, Alexander the Great was a phenomenal general, and he was young. He died at the age of 32. So when he was doing a lot of his, his conquests, he was very young. 
And the story is that he got to, um, to where he didn't see what else was available to conquer. And there's a, a story called Plutarch that said, When Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept, for there were no more worlds left to conquer. And he went into this self-destruction, and he ended up dying at the age of 32 because of bad choices and living hard and all that kind of stuff. But you see what Alexander did. His, he knew how to conquer. He knew how to do that. But once his armies were, were tired, they wanted to go home, and he looked around and he said, what else is there to do? There's no more worlds to conquer. This is depressing. This is terrible. The guy on the other side is a guy that, as a young man, he was known as Octavius. Octavius was uh, one of the heirs apparent to Julius Caesar, several hundred years after Alexander the Great lived. And his uh, picture is all over Rome, where uh, part of my family lives. Um, and what he did is there were a few other heirs, uh, Mark Antony being one, that fought for power after Julius Caesar passed away. And Octavius ended up being victorious and, and took, uh, took power and uh, conquered the rest of these Roman armies, big civil war. And he became known to history henceforth as Augustus Caesar. In fact, when Jesus was born, Augustus was the Caesar that was ruling in Rome at that time. Augustus is an interesting guy, and he knew the story about Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, once he had conquered all that he knew how to conquer, he wept because there was no worlds left to conquer. And Augustus said something like this. It's not a, there's no direct quote. There's just people referring to what he had to say about it. He said, Conquering was easy compared to administering and building an empire. And Augustus ruled for years and years, and he said that the conquering part was the easy part. The tough part was trying to keep people happy, trying to keep people going in a good direction. That is far, far more difficult than conquering. And Augustus was, as far as uh, governors go, he's a phenomenal leader. Uh, we learn a lot from him. You still learn a lot from him. But do you see his point there? Is that the conquering is the easy part. The living, maintaining afterwards, is the difficult part. Something that Alexander the Great never understood, Augustus did, and we're going to see it with the judges, is bringing in Joshua, bringing the armies in and taking over Canaan, this amazing land that God promised them, was the easy part. The difficult part is what we see happen right now. And so let's look in the book of Judges. Go ahead and turn there. I have a few of the scriptures up here. And I'll read this one. Uh, it's on the handouts that you have there. It says, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. All right, so that's what happens. This generation that has been one, that had wandered around the, uh, the deserts and had come in and served and taken over this land, they live good lives out the rest of their years. They get to uh, take advantage of the blessings that God had given them, and life was really, really good for them. In the next couple of verses, what happens, it says, Joshua passed away as an old man, and uh, he was gathered to his ancestors, gathered to his fathers. And this is what happens next. After that whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither... Knew, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. 
And these are these gods that were native to that area before they had taken over. And these were gods that required human sacrifices, like we've talked about. If you got married and you had a son, that first son was probably going to be a human sacrifice. Really, really detestable, scary stuff. And what happens is the Israelites go back to that stuff. Instead of worshiping God that says, I don't do that stuff. I want you to follow me. I want, I got, I got some rules. I got some regulations for you. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I want you to love your neighbors yourself. Instead of that, it's sometimes it's just easy for us to grab onto something that's really tough instead of looking at heart issues. And that's what the Israelites wrestled with. I'm going to continue on verse 12 in chapter 2. And this gives a summary of what happens in the book of Judges. It says, They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Because remember, God had said, if you don't follow me and you chase after everything else and you start doing this stuff again that's that's evil and destructive, then I'm going to discipline you like a son disciplines, like a father disciplines their children, and you're going to have complications. It's going to be tough. You're going to be oppressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the hands of these raiders. So judges, we, we think of a judicial judge. Think leader, military ruler, expand the, the concept a bit. Yet they would not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who had oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following their other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. So what happens, and uh, this is this one's a little hard to read probably from where you're at. If I, it's hard for me to read. It's probably hard for you to read. But there's a, another one I'll show here in just a second. What we see is this cycle of human, human sin that continues through the book of the Judges. First of all, the Israelites are, are doing great. Life is good. They're going along. And then they decide, well, instead of worshiping that God, we're going to worship this and we're going to pursue something different. And so what happens is the Israelites are afflicted by their enemies. Someone comes in, whether it be the Midianites or Canaanites, they come in and uh, wreak havoc. And then the Israelites cry to the Lord for deliverance. They say, God, we have done wrong. We need to return to you. And then the Lord raises up judges who deliver the Israelites from their enemies. And that cycle happens over and over and over again. And does this look a little bit like human nature? Can we relate to this just a bit? Here's another drawing that... Uh, demonstrates this cycle in the life of the judges. Israel serves the Lord. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel is enslaved. Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge, and Israel is delivered. And then Israel serves the Lord and goes right back into this cycle over and over again. How many of you can relate to some of this in your own life? Yeah, absolutely. If we're honest, we understand that we go through these periods and we wrestle through them. And so we're going to look at a few judges. Dan Staley taught the Bible class, the adult class this morning, and did a great job uh, talking about some of these um, some of these judges. And I'll give some basic story about these judges and at least one lesson we can learn from each one of them. 
Now this story is, and, and if you're looking at this picture thinking, oh my goodness, what on earth is going on there? Or if you want to read some stories where you think, is that really in the Bible? Judges is a great place to read. Because there's several of the stories there you think, oh my goodness, did that seriously happen? And why on earth did they write that down? Um, the story of Ehud is a story where Israel had gone into the cycle. There had been, uh, Moab was a nation that was sent to oppress them, to teach them, to bring them back to God. And there was a king named Eglon. And this king, as the picture, he was a very large man, it says. He's very heavy. And so you have someone named Ehud who is some, his claim to fame is something that was pretty rare, is that he was left-handed. He's different than most of us. How many of you are left-handed? We've got a few of us in the room, right? There's not a lot, but he's a lefty. And so he straps the sword to the opposite leg that they would have anticipated. And as he is bringing tribute to Eglon, he comes in to, uh, to speak to Eglon and says, hey, we've got to speak silently here. I've got a, a secret message for you. And, and Eglon's like, oh yeah, sounds great. They bring Ehud in there. Everybody else leaves. And Ehud grabs his sword and he stabs the king through the stomach. And it says that the king was so big that the sword disappeared. Now, that is one of those things where you hear it and you think, oh my goodness, what on earth is that about? That's so weird. Well, I'll, tell you, I'll share one thing. When we had Bible story times when my kids were really small and we'd ask, hey, what, once we'd have programs that we'd read through and sometimes we'd say, hey, kids, what do you want to read today? And one of my kids, and I won't tell you which, but every time she got to choose, every time she got to choose, she said, I want to read about Ehud. We're like, okay, boy, all right, we'll read about Ehud. Here we go. And uh, maybe there's some great things that... that uh, all of us can learn from the book of Ehud. One of, or, excuse me, the, um, the person of Ehud. But one of the things that comes out here is that Ehud teaches us a lesson is that one person can make a difference. All right? In that sometimes all of us just kind of think, well, you know, here we are. We're in this situation. This is tough. This is difficult. And we're not sure how to get out of it. And sometimes it just takes one person that's courageous enough to say, I'm going to step out and I'm going to do something. And... Um, and sometimes really good things can come from that. And, uh, and God works in order to uh, call all of us higher. Now remember, this we're talking about a different time period here, very different. This is pre-Jesus. Jesus taught us a whole lot and brought us a lot closer back to God. But some of these other stories are, are difficult to wrap our minds and hearts around as well. Uh, Deborah is, this is an amazing story. A uh, lesson we can learn from here is that God, in this story, uh, the women are the heroes. Um, and God can do amazing things through through all of us. Ladies, God's got great plans for you. Here, Deborah is an amazing story. She is a judge, and she sits, it says in Judges, under the palm of Deborah. There's a tree that she had that she sat by, and people came from all over to be able to listen to her wisdom, and she shared that. And so Deborah had, uh, uh, when when the uh, the Canaanites, in, in this particular case, were oppressing them, there is... Uh, they're trying to figure out, oh man, what are we supposed to do now? And Deborah and Barak, who is the the, the leader of the, of the general of the army there, they, uh, they try to. Barak is called to go and and um, and fight against the Canaanites, and and he says, Deborah, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. And Deborah says, Fine, I'll go. And she goes, and uh, and they get in this massive pitched battle, and the Israelites are living up in the mountains, and fighting on foot, whereas the Canaanites have all these chariots down on the plains. Just imagine going up against tanks on foot. 
how scary that would be. And the Israelites go down there and they rout the Canaanite army. And as the Canaanites are fleeing, the general of the Canaanite army, his name is Sisera, what he does is he, uh, he's running and he's trying to get away. And he runs into the tent, or he's running through, and there's a, a lady that is there named Jael. And she says, it says, Scripture says she spoke softly to him. She turned on her charm. And she says, oh, hey, hey, come on in here. And he runs inside and he says, I'm thirsty. Give me uh, some, uh, something to, to drink. And she gives him, he asks for water. She gives him milk. And he lays down. And here it is. Okay, I'm just telling you what the Scripture says here. He falls into a deep sleep, and she gets a tent peg and puts it in his temple and pounds it into the ground and, and, uh, and pins him to the ground. And I see from some of the look on your faces, you're like, <gasps> yeah, that's in there, read it, it's there. Remember, living in very different times here. And in all of this, what happens is God uses some very, very unlikely people to bring about deliverance for his people, to get them out of the oppressed state that they're in. We see another hero here, uh, one of the judges, his name is Gideon. Uh, And Gideon, as the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, all right, Gideon, and um, at this point in time, the Midianites have, uh, have covered the land. It said they would come in with their camels and they would eat everything and they would take everything. Uh, from the area. And so the Israelites were reduced to living up in the mountains, living in caves, just trying to scratch food off of rocks. A really tough, tough existence at this point. And God approaches, the angel of the Lord approaches Gideon and says, Hey Gideon, you mighty warrior. And Gideon says, What, me? What are you talking about? We're the least in our tribe and least in our clan. How on earth can you call me great warrior? I don't think that's appropriate. And so there's, there's this exchange that happens, and one of the things that God asked Gideon to do is that your father has built one of these idols to Baal, and I want you to, to destroy it. And so Gideon takes some servants with him, and he's, he's afraid, so he does it at night, and he goes and he destroys this idol that is on his father's, father's property. And so the townspeople come and say, we're going to kill Gideon we're gonna, because he destroyed this altar. And Gideon's father says to him, wait a minute here, Are, do you have to defend Baal's case? Can't... Baal defend himself. If Baal is God, then he's going to take care of my son himself. You know, you don't have to do it. And so the people go their way. And um, there's Gideon is one of those kind of like Moses. You remember Moses, the burning bush. He's he he struggles to God. I just I know you've got great plans for me, but I would just rather someone else do this. This is scary. Okay. And Gideon responds to God very much the same way. And God, uh, Gideon asks God to give him some tests. God to make sure that this is. The word is truly from God. And Gideon, God responds all the way through. Gideon gets an army together, says there's 32,000 people that are there ready to go into battle against the Midianites. And God approaches Gideon and says, wait a minute, there's way too many people here because if I deliver you with all of these people, then you're going to turn around, you as a people are going to turn around and say, hey, we did this because we've got superior military forces or because we're really good or we're righteous or whatever. What I want you to do is you tell everybody who is afraid to go home right now. And a huge portion of the army just leaves and goes home. And then he tests them by, says, take them down to the water and see how they drink. And he whittles down by the way that people drink to 300 people. 
going up against thousands and thousands of armed Midianites with their camels out there. And so Gideon takes them and God directs him what to do. He divides them up into three companies of a hundred and they surround the Midianite camp there in the hills above. And they have, each of them have a trumpet made out of a ram's horn and then they have torches with a pitcher over the top to cover up the light so the Midianites couldn't see them there. And they get into the middle of the night and they break the clay pots. There's torches surrounding the Midianite camp and they all blow on their trumpets. And it sends the Midianite camp into chaos and they go all sorts of different directions and they end up um, killing each other in the process. And God uses Gideon to deliver the Israelites from oppression here again. Again, the lesson is what's impossible for us is not impossible for God. God does not work the way we do. Maybe we say it in a different way, is that dynamite comes in small packages. Okay? Sometimes we just can't think through everything, and God's got plans that are beyond what we can ever imagine to do great stuff. Another, uh, another judge that we see here is Samson. Samson is different than the rest of the judges, is that he is a one-man army all by himself. The rest of them have armies, they lead armies in the battle. But Samson is just by himself uh, a one-man wrecking crew. Now, there's a, a few different amazing things that happen in the life of Samson. Like he, um, he is pledged to be married, and one of the things he does in choosing a, a wife for himself, his, uh, his parents say, can't you find somebody from among our own people that worships our, our God that you can marry? And he says, no, I like her. I'm chasing her. Um, and uh, that's, that's what he, he decides. And so as they go down to, he's going to, to marry this lady. You read through, the whole story is amazing. Uh, things don't go very well. There ends up being conflict, and Samson starts some of it. And uh, there's uh, Samson ends up, as the Philistines come, and they're going to, to try to, to kill him. He picks up a, raw, a donkey's jawbone that says it was fresh, and so there's still stuff hanging off of it. And he goes up against these, this great uh, group of Philistines and just with the donkey jawbone. And he, um, he kills a bunch of them that way. And it develops, uh, the Philistines develop a healthy respect to, um, for the Israelites because of Samson. And there's one thing after the other that Samson does, like ripping gates off of towns and bringing them up. And there's, there's part of me, when we think about that, wait a minute, how can someone, how can someone do that? And I have to go back and think, if God can create the world that we live in so amazing, then God can sure empower somebody to rip the gates off a town and carry them 20 miles up to a town nearby, right? That's how it works. One of the things that Samson is known for is uh, getting involved with a lady named Delilah. And so Del he and Delilah uh, weren't married, but they were involved. And so what happens is Sa Samson is, would go down and he'd visit Delilah, and the Philistine ruler said, Delilah, you have got to tell us, because she's a Philistine, you've got to tell us the secret to Samson's great strength. And so she tells him, says, Samson, baby, come on, you've got to tell me, why on earth are you so strong? You've got to tell me this stuff. And so what he does is he tells her several different things over time. He says, well, if, if, my, if I'm tied up with fresh ropes that have never tied anybody else, then, then I lose all of my strength. And so she would wait till he was asleep, and then she'd tie him up, and then the Philistines would come in, and he'd break them, and he'd get in this big fight with them. You know, ama crazy, amazing stories. And... Um, and finally, she just, over and over again, he tells her the wrong things. And she 
it says she wears him out and says, Samson, how can you really love me and, and how can you trust me? How can you tell me that you love me if you don't trust me? You've got to tell me what your strength is. Samson finally tells her, he says, from birth, when I was born, God said a razor can never be used to my head. If my hair is cut, then I will lose all of my strength. Delilah realizes, oh, wait a minute, he's finally telling me the truth. You wonder what's going on in Samson's mind right now. Did this guy not learn? Right? But, but then if we look at ourselves, we can think of times when we don't learn very well either, right? And she cuts his hair while he's sleeping. The Philistines come in, they, they grab him. He can't fight back. His strength is gone. They gouge out his eyes and they put him to uh, grinding grain in the, the prison. There is a, a time goes by, and it just you wonder if Samson's time is done. At the end of his life, he is brought out because there's a great festival for one of these Philistine gods, and it says there's thousands of people on the roof of this amazing, phenomenal temple structure that is built there. And they brought Samson out to perform. Imagine they they lead him around in chains. They say, "Oh, this is the great Israelite that was so strong, and look, he's not so strong now." And it says that he performs for them. I'm not sure what that would have been, whether flexing his muscles or what. But anyway, they take him and they put him near the pillars that would hold up the rest of this temple. And Samson says, God, I pray just one more time, give me strength to bring, and he says, revenge is the term he uses on my enemies here. Um, And he puts his hands up against both of the pillars, it says. He pushes on them, and the whole place comes down. And and he says, let me die with the Philistines, with my enemies. And Samson and and a bunch of them all pass away there together. Kind of amazing story. There's a lot that we can learn from Samson, and a whole lot that we can learn that uh, maybe God can use us in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our uh, things that we really blow in this life. But maybe one of the great things that we learn from Samson is... Um, if someone approaches you and says, what you need to do is just follow your heart, that might be very, very bad counsel. Because what Samson did is he was one that just simply followed his heart, and his heart was misdirected in some ways that were really disastrous for him. And left to ourselves, oftentimes, if we just follow our heart, like Jeremiah, the prophet, Old Testament prophet, says the heart is deceptive above all things, because we can be deceived to go all sorts of different directions, But it isn't until we come back full circle to say, what does the God who created me want me to be? And when we get back there, what happens is we get in step with our Creator, and instead of following our heart, we follow God's heart, and we can't go wrong when we uh, come full circle and, and are following the heart of God. This is where Judges ends. This is the last scripture here. It says, In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. It ends very different than Joshua with choose this day whom you will serve. We will serve the Lord. It's great. But when regular life takes over, after the conquest, after the honeymoon, who we are really comes to the surface. And that's what we see with judges. With the Israelites, it was we will be people who will serve God until we don't, until we forget. And then we go back to our old ways. We go back to these self-destructive and and destructive tendencies that we have that destroy us and destroy the people around us. And then God has a way of bringing us back 
to learn from him. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. At the beginning, I asked you guys when we saw the diagrams of how the book of Judges worked, how many of you could relate to this? And I can, and uh, many people raise their hands. We can sure relate to that. And so the question I thought about is, does that mean that we are cursed to repeat the same things over and over again? Does that mean that that's, we don't have a hope, is that we're going to find ourselves self-destructing at some point in time? And when I pondered that question this week, are we doomed to follow the same pattern? I believe when we look at mankind, we can't help but think, yeah, we're probably doomed to do the same things over and over again. Mankind, we have a, a tendency to be self-destructive, to learn some things, then forget about them, and we make these mistakes over and over again. And generally, I think that's the way the world works, and we see that. But more specifically, let's talk about ourselves, is that for you and me, we don't have to do that. For you and me, we can look back at what God told the Israelites and said, if you come into this land and you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you learn my laws, you put them in your hearts, you, you learn them, you, you really get excited about this, you treat others the way you want to be treated, love your neighbor as yourself, as he says in Leviticus, you live that way, hey, the sky is the limit for the blessings that I'm going to shower down on you. But our greatest enemy oftentimes is who? is ourselves, right, is that we forget, we get complacent, we get lazy, we decide that uh, uh, whatever it may be, we get our heart or head twisted around somewhere, and we miss out on the great goodness that God wants to, to give to us. And so it starts with us as individuals, am I going to be one that says, as for me and my household, expanding to families, we will serve the Lord. Today, I'm going to be the person that God needs me to be. I'm not going to make excuses. I'm just in. And we do that every day. We wake up every morning and say, God, here I am. May not be fancy, may not be polished, may not be awesome, but I'm yours for what it is. Just use me for good stuff. And we do that every day. What happens with us as individuals and our families and whoever else we have influence is that starts to take effect in our lives. And over time we change, and as a church we do the same things. Now, we don't have to, uh, in our generation, with our people, and hopefully in our... I'm hopeful that our children, our children's children for many generations, with the community that meets here, that uh, God is working to do amazing things because we learn something from the judges. We go back, we get into God's Word, we let it touch our hearts, and we become the people that God wants us to be, day in, day out. There's something that I read this last week, it was, and it starts with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and then it, it speaks, uh, uh, this article speaks to some more things here. But uh, the screw tape letters, I've talked about that before. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a tremendous author um, in the first part of the last century, middle of last century. And he, uh, um, during World War II, he wrote screw tape le- the screw tape letters, and it, it dealt with one demon trying to convince another demon or give coaching on how to tempt people and how to, to walk through uh, life to try, to try to make a person make terrible decisions and destroy their souls. And this is um, the same author of Mere, Christian, or Mere Christianity, but he's oftentimes known for the Chronicles of Narnia. The same guy wrote all of this. And in the screw tape letters, there's a quote that he says, the safest road to hell or separation from God for eternity is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. It's just little by little by little, 
um, we find ourselves in a place we don't want to. I think that's probably what happened with the judges that time in Israel. Is they went through life, they got complacent, and just you know whatever. God's God's over there somewhere. And listen to this. Often it happens when you start to compromise the small things. Maybe you take a deduction you shouldn't on your taxes, or you get a little too close emotionally to someone you're not married to. Sure, nothing happened, but deep down, you know something is happening in your heart. Or maybe just you just shade the truth a little in conversations to make yourself or the situation look better than they really do. The first moral lapse is always the hardest, then it gets easier from there. I believe that's what happened with the judges, is some point, somewhere in the hearts of many, there was just a blurring of the lines here and there. The next time it got easier, next time it got easier, and it just went from there. But for us, the thing to remember is that um, each one of us is responsible for our relationship with God and deciding right now, right here, I will be God's person. And um, I know that there's uh, the times that I... I experience shortcomings. I'm going to be transparent about it. I'm going to be truthful about it. But I know that God, uh, I will be God's person. And we do that. Uh, we've got uh, God walking alongside us to lead us into amazing, amazing places in this life. If you'd like to become a Christian and you'd like prayers of the church, the elders are waiting in the back. Let's go ahead and stand and sing together, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper before we head out this morning. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross.